0: now entering nerdist.com
1: mission log supplemental number seven the one with david gerald i'm recording
0: i am also recording you know what this makes me think we should do john What should we do? Maybe a supplemental episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. What do you think?
1: Well, you know, Ken, it's so strange that you and I would both be uh, connected via computer at the same time and recording at the same time. So, um, yeah, why not? Why not turn this into a supplemental? Um, And I would say not just any supplemental episode, Ken Ray. I would say this will be the supplemental with David Gerald, he of Tribble's fame.
0: It will be Uh, supplemental number seven. If you are keeping score at home, we do have a conversation. Really, I think a fascinating conversation with David Gerald, uh, the the inventor of the Tribble, and and the troubles that didn't sue. Uh, (laughs) Happen just a bit. We do also have a bit of interesting listener feedback. But first, say it with me, John. Vegas, baby. Vegas,
1: baby. Yeah. (laughs) All right.
0: Maybe we should have rehearsed that, but, you know.
1: (laughs) For for any of our listeners who uh, may not know, and I, and I hope that's just a small minority of you. The big, gigantic, mega convention to end all Star Trek conventions will be in Vegas again uh, the second weekend of August at the fabulous Rio Hotel. And, uh, Ken, you and I will be there representing Mission Log. And I'm very excited about that because the last time we were in Vegas together, we had just launched Mission Log. And we really didn't have anything to do.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mission Log actually – Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I found stuff to do. You Is found okay? things. To oh do. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Uh, I think actually Mission Log launched the first day of last year's convention, mm-hmm. and that was kind of exciting because we woke up and there was no show, and then all of a sudden we we're you know, near the top of uh, of iTunes, which was a lot of fun.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so we're passing out cards and we're saying, "No, really, we do a show about the w- well one so far, but <laughs> seriously, <laughs> we're going to do every episode of Star Trek, and now by the time we get there, it'll be fifty something." You know, episode yeah. to Star Trek one a week and uh yeah, long may we wave. So uh, and 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 stop by and see us because we will wave uh and do other things. Um stop will. by will be where the w- w- which do you want to do first, the small one or the big one, and which one do you consider small?
1: Uh well I consider small the fact that we will be No, no, no. I I, yeah, I reverse my decision. You really can't, you can't do it, list. can you? No, I can't do it. Okay, here, here's the little thing to be aware of. This I, little thing I would that not do it.
0: I would not even say little. I would say, do you want to do the big one or the big one?
1: Uh, We're going to do the big one first. The big one is the panel.
0: And then we'll do the big one, which is the Roddenberry uh, booth. Right. Okay. Do the panel.
1: Okay, so the panel, uh, Ken and I will be doing Mission Log Live, uh, where we will be on a panel, on a stage. Uh, it looks like the indomitable, inimitable Larry Nemichek will be hosting that panel, and uh, we will talk about Mission Log. We'll talk to Larry, we will get uh, listener Q&A, and I do think that that will turn into... A supplemental episode of its own. So if you want to ask us questions, then that will be the time to do it uh, because it'll be on stage. Everybody will be there. I'm really looking forward to that. But as big as that is, Ken, I think the other thing may be bigger. What is that other thing?
0: Well, I I mean, it's, it's certainly a large table. (laughs)
1: Right, <laughs> it's a huge table, yeah, um, Smack so, dab in the middle of the vendor room,
0: so Roddenberry, I guess it's Roddenberry entertainment, right mm-hmm. in the middle of the vendor room has a gigantic uh presence where they you know sell shirts and they sell other things, and you know they they hang out and they're just you know generally speaking groovy with people, and so we're gonna hang out there and be groovy with people, uh just like you, unless you're there, in which case with you. Yeah, yeah. We we don't have an exact schedule for that, but uh, well, I know I'm planning on sleeping under the table, so I will be there. <laughs> you know, pretty much the whole weekend, maybe right. awake part of the time. You know, other times uh, it could be like that Tilda Swinton thing. Just stop by and watch me sleep.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, what a good idea that is.
0: <laughs> that really um, sounds ghastly.
1: Uh, but we'll, we'll be hanging out. We'll be chatting. We will we may even do some recording at the table and turn that into something. We don't know. I mean, yeah. it's a whole weekend that we get to make up the rules.
0: Yeah. So. But but the best part is, I mean, there have been a number of people who have said, you know, oh, I hope we bump into you in Vegas. I hope we get to see you there. Uh, I know there have been people that I've said that to as well. So mm-hmm. we're going to, you know, at least for part of each day, going to be a, a fixed point uh, to which people can come. And uh, right. probably um, the, the Twitter uh, handle mission log pod would be the best way to find out. Well, one of us will actually have to run out of the hotel and tweet <laughs> <Right>. that we're <laughs> going to be there because if you haven't been to Rio, you know, bring your cell phone because you may leave the hotel, but otherwise, it's just a clock the whole time you're there because there's no connectivity.
1: Right. Uh, The the important pieces of uh, business to express to you all, as Ken mentioned, uh, Mission Log Pod on Twitter and also on Facebook, uh, Mission Log Pod. We will mention where we will be and at what time. So stay tuned for all of those details to come in. Also, uh, we want to mention that the website for the convention, creationent.com, is where you can get all the information about Star Trek Las Vegas, uh, August 8th through the 12th, uh, 2013. And uh, I also want to mention, you know, we will probably have some Mission Log t-shirts, some swag, as it were, Ken. And uh, you can find all of that not only through missionlogpodcast.com, but through missionlog.spreadshirt.com. And uh, we have some cool new designs there for everybody to check out. So uh, if you come and you're wearing a Mission Log t-shirt, well, you'll, uh, you'll win our praise and adoration
0: yeah, that's it. that's so what you get there, from us. There are no yeah. prizes. <laughs> maybe we should try to. You know, here's what we'll do. Uh, you create a distraction. I'll grab okay. something from another table.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like, like a triple from David Gerald's table.
0: Yeah, maybe a triple from David Gerald's table. I know um, Garrett has has yep. some lovely t-shirts. He does, and he you does. know, you maybe you know yell, ah, my hair's on fire. <laughs> Right. Ger- Garrett will look at you and I'll try to size up whoever we're getting the prize for and, uh, and grab you a snazzy Garrett Wong t shirt.
1: We come up with so many good ideas just on the fly. This is totally improvised. People. Yeah,
0: you would never you know that. Would you, you would never, know. You would never yeah. ever, ever guess that.
1: All right. Well, enough of our yammering. Let's get on to the David Gerald interview. So, David, can you walk us through? Uh, your original Star Trek fandom and kind of what led you to submit your story ideas? What attracted you to the show in the first place? What what made it different?
3: Well, I, you know, I did write a book called The Trouble with Tribbles, the making of etc., etc., cetera, et cetera, which outlines this. So it's kind of like, oh, God, do I have to talk about this again? Basically, in uh, my last year of college, they were going to uh, – What's the word I'm looking for? They, they, what they call senior students is like, okay, we've had enough of you. We're going to move. You're graduating. I don't want to graduate. I'm happy in school. No, you're graduating. Um, I'm not dead yet. I'm not. And uh, get on the wagon. Uh, so um, I uh, had been cast in a show called Winnie the Pooh. I was playing Rabbit, and um, it w- children's theater. And uh, um, what happened was they. Uh, uh, a Thursday night, 8.30, NBC pre- premiered this weird new show. I hadn't seen any, I'd only seen one uh, preview of it on NBC. I mean, there was no real publicity. But I said, oh, Star Trek, oh God, it'll probably be another Lost in Space. Well, I'll give it, you know, one episode. And it was The Man Trap by George Clayton Johnson. And I thought, well, you know, there was this one thing about it that, really struck me that there was imagination involved and it was a very subtle thing is if you look at the alien pyramid the size of the blocks and the size of the doors was not human proportioned and i thought somebody there is thinking outside the limits of television because based on what we'd seen in a lot of other shows you know and and so i said you know there's something going on there. This could be a good science fiction show. Now, i was been reading science fiction since I was old enough to open a book um, and, uh, you know, uh, started with Robert A. Heinlein, Rocketship Galileo. Same so thing with rocket ships in it. I was, You know, I wanted – so I knew my science fiction. I'd already done two years at USC. So I wanted to – so I knew a, a screenplay structure and uh, format. And I submitted an outline – for uh, a two-part episode uh, called Tomorrow Was Yesterday, and it was about a generation ship that gets lost, and the Enterprise rescues it, uh, stumbles across it, and, and of course, the people don't understand that there's anything outside their generation ship. Gene Elkoon, I wrote that, and my agent turned it in on Monday. So we had September 6th, the show premiered, it was September 8th, excuse me, show premiered, and that was a Thursday, and the following Monday... So I wrote this 60-page outline over the weekend. My agent turned it in on Monday. And I got a call before the week was over. We really like what your young man has written. We'd love to meet him. And that was Gene L. Coon. So I came in. He said, we're all bought up. And your episode, as outlined, would be too expensive. But we'd love to uh, see what you can turn in if we're renewed for a second season. I said, OK, great. So the following February, uh, we heard that Star Trek had been renewed. So immediately... And I had been dashing off outlines. I turned in five outlines, submitted five outlines. Now, the joke here, there's two jokes here. The first joke is I actually mentioned the Tribble episode in that first meeting with Gino Kuhn. I said, I have an idea for uh, these fuzzy creatures. He says, sounds expensive. I don't think it'll work. (laughs) So I said, all right, fine. And I wrote the outline anyway, because I knew it wasn't. The other uh, a joke i mean i just don 't didn 't take no for an answer I was just absolutely certain that the that the fuzzy little creatures was a story that had to be told. The other episode the other joke was that because we were doing Winnie the Pooh and taking it on tour for all of the fall semester, we had rehearsals, and then we had the show. Uh, I think we had six weeks of touring i mean just an, a lot of work because we took it to all the different schools and high schools and grammar schools and you know, supermarket openings, whatever. And um, uh, uh, so I did not see any more episodes of Star Trek at all until I think I saw one around Christmas Vacation. And um, then so that uh, I was playing catch-up in February, finally watching the show and finally seeing reruns. Um, And I got a call in June that they were going to buy the fuzzy story. Dorothy Fontana had written a memo. This one has some whimsy. I must have a copy of that memo somewhere. And Gene L. Coon said called me and said, we're going to buy this. And we went step by step on that. But the joke was that I did not admit I hadn't seen. I'd seen at that point maybe six or eight episodes. So I was... Watching every rerun, reading every script I could we didn 't have DVRs or VCRs or tapes or anything, so it was only if you could catch them on Thursday nights, so I was, and I was then I would visit the set um, I asked permission to visit the set, and I was reading scripts like Mad and watching them shoot, and um, uh, we went step by step first, I wrote the outline, then I got to do first draft, then I got to do the rewrite. But the biggest l- part of the adventure was going to the set and watching everybody work and listening to how the actors spoke in real life because I, I don't think a lot of people understand this, but actors are human beings and uh, they, they have their quirks and idiosyncrasies. Uh, Bill Shatner is a really marvelous. He's a workaholic and he has this pattern of speaking. And then Leonard Nimoy has also a very, uh, very, uh, I hate to use the word stentorian, but because that's the wrong word. its uh, He has this very methodical way, precise way of speaking that suits Spock perfectly. And, and uh, all of the other actors had their own specific voice. So the more you listen to an actor as a person, and then the more you listen to the way they're playing their character, the more you listen to... The line that you get the voice in there in your head. When you get the actor's voice in your head, then you can write dialogue that is from the character. And I think of all of the, you know, I know a lot of people say, "Oh, Tribbles is very funny," or "Tribbles is this," "Tribbles is that." It's an ecology story too, which that was the the lesson snuck in there. But of all of the real strengths of the Tribbles script, I say that the strongest part was that I was able to capture the character the voices of the actual characters so that in the the scene with Scotty you know so who started the fight that's uh, Bob Justman wrote I think one of the gave me one of the best compliments ever he said that scene was probably the best scene in the entire season demonstrating the relationship between Kirk and Scott and that's that is really the kind of praise you want is that you got the characters because of all the things necessary to do in a television show. If you get the characters right, the audience will believe the story, I mean, especially with Star Trek when you do stories like Spock's brain. So I think, <laughs> I think really the greatest – for me, it was on-the-job training in how to write Star Trek, which – there's another point that needs to be made that a lot of people have not really understood the context of what Star Trek was at the time. Television writing grew out of radio writing. Before television, there were these half-hour dramas on radio, sometimes an hour-long drama, but mostly half-hour. When television came along, most of the shows were half-hour shows. Dragnet was a half-hour drama um, I'm trying to remember some of the others. Well, Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock. Most of the shows were half-hour shows. Two things happened in the 60s. One was color television became uh, finally got to a market penetration that it was profitable for the networks to go all color. So mid-60s, 65, 66, hello, 1966, CBS, ABC, NBC said, we are the full-color network. All our shows are in color. This was, would not only help sell, sell color TVs, but also it would attract more viewers from those who had color TVs. Uh, but the other thing which most people don't, and, and this explains why Star Trek's color palette was the way it was. Color TV in that time was, um, y- you know, you could do primary colors very nicely, but there was no subtlety. Those sets were primitive by any standards. And so the directive was lots of bright colors, simple colors. And so if you look at Mission Impossible with that bright red screen at the beginning, look at the color palette. And Star Trek, that's we had these beautiful bright colored uniforms and the walls were always colored with a blue or orange or purple uh, uh, light that Jerry Finnerman would sometimes pattern. So that was because of what we could do, you know, we couldn't do subtle. You wouldn't try on those sets, and with that technology, you wouldn't try to do something as beautifully intricate as Firefly. It wouldn't read. It would be, it was too busy, and most of the shows of that time, the sets and costumes and colors were kept very simple. The other thing, and this is the part that most people don't get is that television had moved from a half-hour format to the hour format, which was the point I started out with. Um, and the reason why is, let's say it cost you $100,000 to do a half-hour show. But if you stretch that show out to an hour, you already had the actors, you already had the sets, you paid a little more for the script, you paid for an extra two or three days of shooting, but you reduce the amount of overhead of having to... Shepherd an extra script through the process. You uh, less sets to be built, less costumes to be, less actors to be hired. You could get that second half hour for forty percent. So if you were spending a hundred thousand dollars an hour uh, for a half hour, you could spend a hundred and forty thousand dollars. Actually, it was more than that. I'm just using those numbers because Star Trek was hundred and seventy eight thousand an episode. But that's the point was that that was cheaper than two half hour shows. The problem for screenwriters and producers and directors was that we were still inventing the hour format. The first five years of the 60s, nobody knew really how to do an hour show. And if you look at Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock, when they went to the hour format, they didn't work as well. The episodes felt padded. So to do an hour show, you needed 35 scenes, 35 motivational units. And that is almost A a B movie. It's almost a, a 70 minute movie in terms of storytelling. And what we've done since then is we've packed even more story into less time by accelerating the rate of storytelling. And by the way, we tell the scenes is that we start midway through the scene and leave the scene before it's really over. Somebody says something profound, and instead of sticking around to see how the other character reacts, we cut to the next scene which is not to me dramatically valid. It's very annoying because it's like going through a series of cliffhangers, but it works for television. But at the time, in the 60s, we were inventing not just Star Trek, we were inventing the television format of the hour show along with everybody else. And there weren't a lot of people who knew how to do this. Uh, uh, Most of the people in the Writers Guild of America had come out of radio or movies and television was still 10 years of infancy. You know, it 10 years is is you're still learning how to walk. If you compare shows that were done in the 70s and the 80s with shows that were done in the 60s, you can already see the difference, the maturity of the format. And today, you know, people who've grown up with television today look back at the original episodes of Star Trek and sometimes they have trouble getting into them. They look too quaint, because those episodes, but, I, you know, I think those episodes have aged very, very well. I sit and I watch some of the old episodes. I get caught up in Kirk and Spock. They hold up because of the characters. And because the storytelling from the really great writers, you know, you had Harlan Ellison, Dorothy Fontana, uh, Theodore Sturgeon, Jerome Bixby, Max Ehrlich, uh, Jerry Saul, Richard Matheson, Robert Block, Norman Spinrad. Um, You had so many, Sam Peoples, uh, uh, Stephen Kondell, you had so many really good writers involved in the first season and coming back for the second season as well, um, that those stories hold up. The same way you can go back and watch the uh, original Alfred Hitchcock Presents or or Twilight Zone, they hold up because we didn't have a lot of special effects. We didn't have CGI. Everything was either practical or you didn't do it. And so... And this is my personal theory on storytelling is drama is what happens in the space between two people. So if you lock two people in a room and let them start talking, you're going to have a hell of a story there. And, in fact, I just did a one-hour play. Nothing, it's two guys on stage. You can do it without props, without costumes, without anything. And it is while the, the two long monologues where they're sharing each other well together by a hell of an argument. And we got standing ovations for this play. It's called Uncle Daddy Will Not Be Invited. And it proves, proved my point to me that two people connecting or failing to connect is true drama. And so in, in television in the 50s with Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock and, and even coming to Star Trek, the drama had to be the relationships of the characters, not look at the giant robot, knock down the city. Uh, the fact that we can now do all these great special effects doesn't mean we have to or even we should. Because ultimately, you know, uh, and, and I'll give you an example. The Transformers movies. Can anybody remember the plot, the actual story of any of the Transformers <laughs> movies? No. Giant robots knocking things down, fighting with each other. Okay, yeah, all right. There's there's your, your – but if – and you even have trouble remembering the – Plot of the Avengers, which I loved enormously. Joss Whedon knows how to tell a hell of a story, adventure story. But you know, if you stop and think, can you remember the plot of City on the Edge of Forever? And here it is, like what forty-seven and forty-eight years later. Yeah, I can remember the plot of City on the Edge of Forever real clearly. I remember exact incidents. You know, the 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 beggar. I I fought at Verdun. You know, that's great stuff. You can remember these original stories because you remember the interactions of the people. Whereas if you get to special effects and you get too dependent on the special effects, the story disappears.
0: Let me let me ask you a question. You you mentioned um well, I mean, basically being I don't want to say heralded, but heralded for, for nailing the relationship between uh Kirk and Scotty. We actually spent a lot of time when we were doing Trouble with Tribbles talking about the stuff that we learned about Scotty when you were writing that, were you like, there's something between these two guys and I'm going to suss it out. Or, or is it more like, okay, there hasn't been much really stated between them. I'm going to define it. I mean, which, which one were you doing?
3: Uh, actually, let me come at it from a different angle. Uh, by the time we got to the triple script, I had read, uh, at least half of the second season and seen most of the first season. Um, uh, not all of it, but enough of it. And, um, I was getting bored with Kirk Spock. I didn't say I didn't like him, but I was getting bored with every story was about Kirk and Spock, and I wanted to find out who else was on the ship. And so one of the things I decided early on in the Trouble Trouble with Tribble script was every character in the ensemble would get something interesting to do. Everybody would get off the bridge and would have something interesting to do that would show us who they were as people. Now, with Scott, with Scotty, in fact, with all of them, but there were two areas that uh, I was benefited. The first is each of the actors spent a little time with me telling me about their characters. Uh, I'd visit the set and they'd say, who are you? And I'd say, I'm writing the Tribble script and say, oh yeah, that looks like fun. And, um, uh, you know, here's what I want you to know about my character. And uh, uh, Shatner was, remember, Captain Kirk is the captain, he's the star of the show, <laughs> uh, which is is fair because it, they had just had this terrible comment uh, column somebody had written in Saturday Review of Literature that Spock should be the star of the show because he was far more interesting than Kirk, which is absolutely wrong. Uh, Spock is interesting, but Kirk is the guy who has to make decisions, which is much more difficult than being right all the time. Um, you can be right and make the wrong decision. Self-righteousness is a curse. Um and uh, I like I liked Kirk i still do I like the character very very much. Um I, I because especially in those first two seasons he had a humanity about him that he cared when a character when a crew member died. You can see it in a lot of the scripts. Um I love that compassionate side of Kirk. Uh but for Scotty I went to the writers director's guide, the bible and the bible says mr scott would rather spend time with his technical journals than anything else now at that time i you know as a technical journals god that sounds boring to yeah but now today hand me a bunch of uh, uh magazines about computers or stereo or cameras or uh, or that stuff as so i'm in hog heaven i i get it about technical journals now but at the time i thought that is the most boring thing what a nerdy thing yeah and i, and I was a nerd too so that was the, the source of the gag when uh, Kirk says uh, you're confined to quarters. It was a, such an obvious line. Ah, thank you, Cotton. That will give me more time for my technical journals. And uh, I don't do it as well as Jimmy do it, but <laughs> I do my best. Um, I used to do a real nice Scots accent, but I got out of the habit. Uh, and and unless you practice your, your accents, you, they, they disappear. Um, but... Um, uh, that was where it came from. It was in the writer's director's guide, but nobody had a lot of other writers hadn't paid that much attention to the writer's director's guide. So it was in there that Scotty would rather hang out with his technical journals. So that was uh, Scotty doesn't want to go on shore leave. He wants to stay and play with the machinery, and that's his his that's what excites him. That's his relaxation. He loves the the starship. He loves the machinery. Once I got that little piece of character on Scotty. Uh, All the rest fell into place that uh, he's he's uh, he's a lot like my son. My son likes taking cars apart and putting them back together again a whole new way. So um, Scotty is is this marvelous uh, engineer who loves engineering and uh, you don't use him any other way. When you pull him out of the, the lab and give him a love affair or you or anything else, you're destroying what's beautiful about the character. And on any spaceship, any starship, you're going to have the, the nerds aboard, the engineering nerds who just love their machinery and love making the starship work. And Scotty represents that.
1: Um, I, I want to go back to a couple of things you brought up earlier. Um, you mentioned the uh, the ecological message of tribbles, and uh, part of the inspiration i 've read, obviously being the rabbits in Australia um, and actually some of our listeners uh, wrote back to us talking about other inspiration uh, the Heinlein story, the Rolling Stones, um, and then there was a, a much earlier uh, pigs as pigs. From 1905. We and that released. all goes
3: back to what I put in my book, The Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah, I yeah. got the idea that tribbles should look like fluff balls because Holly Sherman, Sherman's Planet, had a keychain that had a fur ball on it. And I thought, oh, if that was a living creature, it would be <laughs> as cute as a bunny. You would love to play with it. And if it breeds like crazy, you got a problem. And, you know, I had raised during my teen years, if it lived or moved, I had raised it, you know, frogs, lizards. <laughs> Uh, dogs, cats, white mice, white rats, uh, fish. What I, I think animals are the most interesting things on the planet because they reveal so much about who we are. And so, and I knew with the white mice and the white rats, these are so cute, and they're just so lovely. And the, but the damn things, they breed like crazy. You know, and, and, and until I finally had to have two cages, one for the girls and one for the boys. And so <laughs> finally, I got rid of them all. Um, but, yeah, uh, you have that. Uh, that was part of my thinking is little, uh, you know, fuzzy creatures. A lot, and I had uh, – um, did I have my dog then? Yeah, 1966. Yeah, I had a, a shaggy white dog. And, and he was just this really nice, you know, twin brother from another mother kind of – he was a very smart animal. And so I, I was this animal person, and, and the rabbits in Australia story had been haunting me for years, and the, here's the fluff ball. Now, later on, I, now I was aware of Pigs of Pigs, and I was aware of the Heinlein story, and um, Heinlein himself said, he said to me more than once, it's not the idea, it's what you do with the idea, and he said, we both owe a debt to uh, Ellis Parker Butler for Pigs as Pigs. And he even wrote that in a note to me. And he was very generous about that. Um, and uh, I, I would tell you this, if Heinlein had felt, you know, the studio offered Heinlein a credit, and he said no, which was uh, a, a very important lesson to learn. You don't jump other writers' credits. But uh, if Heinlein had felt that I had done him wrong, he, he and I would never have been friends. Heinlein had very strict, very strict boundaries and uh, we were uh, uh, very good friends. He'd call me from time to time, I'd call him and he didn't give his phone number out to a lot of people and uh, we would chat uh when you know he, he way off in Bonnie Dune uh he you know he didn't have a lot of human contact which is partly the way he wanted to be left alone but partly you know he wanted to talk to his colleagues he'd get on the phone with theodore sturgeon or with me or other, uh, diane duane or other people we'd give him a call from time to time i dedicated a book and sent it to him he expecting he'd put it on the shelf no 3 days later he called me and told me how how much he liked the book so really um I think people who are saying, oh, Gerald took it from the Rolling Stones, even if that were true, it would not have been a problem because what I did with Tribbles was something different than what Heinlein did with Rolling Stones. Now, for some of our listeners who don't know, obviously, you you are
1: so intricately uh, recognized and, and uh, connected to The Trouble with Tribbles, but you were around Star Trek a lot, and uh, you, you had a dynamic with the producers on the show. You were brought in to uh, kind of doctor some of the other scripts yeah. uh, later in the series. Yeah. Can, can you talk uh, about two things? Uh, a, some of those scripts that stood out to you, some of the work that you did, and B, what your dynamic was like with the producers. You mentioned Gene Kuhn. We haven't really touched on well, Roddenberry I, I'll yet, tell you but...
3: this. Roddenberry was out of town He was on vacation with Majel, a well-deserved vacation, Mm -hmm. because if you look back at the history of getting Star Trek sold and getting it mounted and getting it it produced and getting the first season and a half going, uh, Bob Justman practically had a nervous breakdown. And Gene was exhausted because he's carrying the whole show. Anybody who's done any producing knows this. Uh, When uh, Producing, directing, show running, it is... Not a nine to five job. It is a twelve hour job. It is a sixteen hour job. You go home, you collapse. You go back. Your weekends disappear. Um, it it's a back it's breaking work. Um, and even if you're only on staff, like I was on Next Gen, uh, which is a whole other story, but you it's 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 a full time job because you love the show. You want it to work. You just you, and you know. There's this deadline rushing down on you. We have to have something to shoot. We have to be there on the sound stage and, and my personal feeling is I want to give the actors the very best I can because they're going to take the blame. They're on the front line. so um, anyway, uh, um, so Gene took a vacation. Gene O as the showrunner, was pretty much running the well running the show he was the showrunner. He was pretty much in charge uh, picking actors, picking scripts, etc. And, um, when Roddenberry got back, Trouble with Tribbles had already been shot. It was in the can. And I met him once. He says, nice script to me. And that was it. I met him once in the office. And wow, I met Gene Roddenberry finally. And, and very impressive, you know, tall, big man, just a big, great smile. And you just, you know, you'd throw yourself on a hand grenade for him because you just wanted to make him happy. was that kind. He had that kind of charisma. But privately, Gene would say things in private that he would never say in public. And he I'm pretty sure he was very unhappy with the Tribble script because he said Star Trek is not a comedy. And I think that's partly the reason why Gene L. Kuhn was pushed off the show was because uh, – with Tribbles and a piece of the action and a couple other shows that were heavy on the comedy, Gene Roddenberry felt must have felt that Gene Alkun was taking the show in a silly direction. The funny thing is, is that those lighter episodes are some of the most popular because they humanize the characters. Uh, with Tribbles there had not been a comedy episode before, and I knew we were breaking the formula of the show. I knew we were going way outside, because normally we were saving the starship, saving a planet, saving the galaxy. And here, we're just trying to keep Kirk from getting up to here in Tribbles, and <laughs> we don't even get to do that, you know. And, and it's a very small show, but it humanizes the characters wonderfully, and it allows us to establish the Klingons as recurring villains. Um, and, uh... And the jokes worked. Now, this is an aside. Gene Roddenberry was not known for his sense of humor. So I love doing comedy. I think comedy is the best way to reveal the truth and say things in comedy and they won't kill you for saying it. Um, Gene, my experience of working with Gene is that he did not know how to tell a joke. He did know how to do a great rant. You know, the kind of rant. Oh, yeah, sign me up. You know, he would do rants in the office about uh, how angry he was about organized religion or how angry he was about blah, blah or angry. You know, and it was great. He would do these great speeches. Um, But jokes? No, not his best. (laughs) So uh, I, I think he was made uncomfortable by jokes because it was something he didn't understand. Uh, And the punchline on that for me, I think the thing that solidified it was, I think when he brought Fred Freiberger aboard for third season, I think somewhere in there he said, Star Trek is not a comedy. Because Fred Freiberger's literally, I am not making this up. His very first words to me were, uh, because I went in on a scheduled meeting, his very is, I screened Tribbles this morning. I didn't like it. Star Trek is not a comedy. Wow, I'm certainly in love with Fred Freiberger now. I, <laughs> wow, you know. Uh, and I thought my social skills were crappy. <laughs> uh, you know, I, the thing is, is I give Freiberger credit. Much more credit than he ever realized. He could bring the show in un, under budget and on time. Where I find fault is I don't think he understood what Star Trek was really about. Who were your biggest allies while you were working on the show? Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana.
1: Yeah. And what do you make of – there's this image of Gene Roddenberry. There there are two Gene Roddenberries, and Rod has said this very often. There are the people who put him on a pedestal and say that he was a great bird and he could do no wrong. And then there are the people who say that Gene was the worst boss they ever worked for. They're both wrong. So so what's the truth? What was your experience?
3: Um, As a human being, uh, Gene was – marvelous is, I mean, he wanted to be known as a visionary, and to some extent he was. He had a vision of the future that works for everyone with no one left out. It was a wonderful vision, inspiring vision. Um, when he would talk to you, write that script that you've always wanted to write, no one else will let you, you, you ended up being a better writer than that you thought you were. Um, Gene was inspiring, but he also would tell you what he thought you wanted to hear. Now, the other half of that is Gene, and he admitted this to me once. He said sometimes if they ever figure, I, I, he says, I feel like I'm faking it, and I don't want, and one day the audience is going to find out. It's the imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. which anybody um who works hard on anything is really committed to anything i've had that feeling you know one day they'll think you know i had somebody ask me about when harley was one my first novel he says how can you be such a good writer and so profound philosophically i said i'm faking the writing (laughs) 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 or i'm faking the philosophy i don't remember why that ben and i have that every time an episode
1: of mission log comes out yeah, yeah so
3: yeah well we all have that feeling of faking it um and, and the, then the audience comes back and says, wow, this was great. You know, I had all my misgivings about my play before it opened. And then we were getting standing ovations. And, of course, the audience doesn't know what I wanted it to be. They only know what they saw and what they saw worked for them. So, Okay, great. Gene's uh, big mistake between 66 and uh, 86 was The Great Bird of the Galaxy he began to believe the publicity. Because in 86, he would listen to writers much more than he would in 86. In 66, 66, he said, let's hire science fiction writers. They know their stuff. In 86, he said, don't hire science fiction writers. They think they know our show better than we do. Well, it was the science fiction writers who defined Star Trek by the episodes they brought in. And by shutting out the science fiction writers... Gene is saying we we don't respect them anymore. Um by eighty six he had there were he had believed his publicity he had to be right about everything. So I had in my blood and fire script I used the term wavicles, which I got from an Isaac Asimov column, his science column. And Gene bawled me out. Why are you making up scientific crap? Wavicles, what does that mean? And I said, well, it's a term for half wave, half particle. It's, it, he says, if I pick up the phone and call my good friend Isaac Asimov, what will he say? I was really <laughs> tempted to say, do it right Hold now. <laughs> I said, that's where the term came from. It came from an Isaac Asimov column. And Gene didn't hear me. Yeah. Um, and what happened on NextGen, and this is a longer story, but what happened on Next Gen is Gene's health and concentration were both failing. And the lawyer, his lawyer came in and appointed himself chief of staff. That was Leonard Maislis. Leonard Maislisch, yeah. and uh, who was the most disgusting, detestable human being I've ever met in the entire planet. You know, I was raised to, to only speak good of the dead. Leonard Maislis is dead. Good. Wait, uh, it, let me ask you, do you, yeah. do you think this was a conscious thing? Do you think this was a conscious good yes.
1: cop-bad cop relationship? Yes,
3: it was. Gene okay. wanted to be loved by everybody. Yeah. So he handed off all the dirty work to Maiselich mm-hmm. or other people. Um, and I saw him do it more than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even saw him try to do it for, on me. He wanted me to love him, but then he would have someone else deliver the bad news. Well, he, by then, people were comparing notes, but what they had been told and what was really going on. So if you were the target of that kind of stuff, you ended up walking away saying Gene is the worst human being I've ever met on the planet. It, to have a complete view of him, you, he, Gene wanted to be loved. He wanted to be He wanted to be the person that the fans had made him up on the pedestal so he couldn't allow himself to be the bad guy. So Mazelich got to be the bad guy. And Maislish bragged he liked to hurt people. So there were times when Mazelich was hurting people like Dorothy Fontana just for the sheer fact that he could. And what happened was that Gene ended up with no friends. Everybody left. Uh, Dor- I left, Dorothy left, Bob Justman left. And one day Gene is, uh, I, I don't know if, if uh, the person who reported this will tell the story, maybe he will. He says Jean. he saw, saw Gene crying on his desk. What's the matter, Gene? All my friends have left me. Well, I don't have any friends anymore. What happened? Well, Leonard Maiselich happened. Gene didn't. Gene didn't trust me, and I had given him. You know, I was giving him sixteen-hour days on the next gen. He didn't trust Dorothy Fontana, and she had given him th- two and a half years on Star Trek, and then was willing to come back. You know, all of a sudden he's not trusting Bob Justman. They had a big fight about the stupidest thing: is we, we, uh, we needed a laser printer in the office. And Bob Justman wanted one in the production office because we're generating an enormous amount of paper. And Gene said, no, we can't afford a laser printer. It was $2,000. And they had a big fight over the fact that Bob Justman couldn't have a laser printer. Meanwhile, we're getting $2 million an episode. Wow. But Gene was getting something, an enormous amount of money per episode. I think it was like 25 grand. No, not per episode, per week. So there's $100,000 a month out of every, there's a lot of money out of it. And plus the other producers are getting big salaries. And why did, were we hiring so many more producers than we need? Because you know, if all you have is me and Dorothy, you're in good shape, really. Because nobody, who knows scripts better than me and Dorothy at the time? The other producers who were brought in had to be educated what Star Trek was. Leonard Maislish brought them in simply so as to dilute any authority Dorothy and I might have over the show. And this, it instigated kind of a big exodus at
1: the end of yes, that it first did. season of Next yes, Gen.
3: Yes, it did. Yeah. Leonard Mezlisch was afraid, and to some extent Gene inherited this fear, that the studio was going to take Trek away from him again and give it to someone else. So what they did was make sure no one else would ever get enough authority or power. One of the things, I, Bob Justman and I were generating hundreds of pages of memos per week. We need to worry about this. We need to take care of this. Let's address this. Here's a story idea, blah, blah, blah. And so the studio heads, I'd see them from time to time walking around on the lot or whatever uh, or in the commissary. And they'd come up to me and say, we love what you're doing. Keep it up. And then I'd get summoned into Gene's office and get balled out. Because every time the studio head would say to Gene, we love what David's doing, Gene would have to assert his authority over me. I didn't see the pattern at first. I was like, what the f*** am I doing wrong? And then I saw the the second or third time it happened. I realized something weird is going on here. It was Leonard Maislisch. And the result was not pretty. You mentioned... Gene's
1: kind of grooming the image of the
3: Great Bird. Do, yeah. Doing
1: the lecture circuit, doing yeah. all of this stuff. Something that we try to do on Mission Log, is we're always trying to parse the point where Star Trek, the the piece of entertainment generated by writers who have good ideas, meets this idea of philosophy, social commentary, what's intended, what's not. Um, you said that you came into Tribbles
3: with the idea of doing comedy, but there was an ecological message. Yeah. In general, do you think that I don't think we got philosophical until after the show was off the air. Uh-huh. I think we knew we were doing good ideas. We knew we were commenting on social issues. We, I mean, drugs, Vietnam, mm-hmm. anti-war, uh, ecology is the tribbles, uh, uh, mutual assured destruction with against the Soviet Union, balance of terror, ba- um, um, a private little war, uh um, Taste of Armageddon those were issue shows, mm-hmm. and Star Trek was very good at doing issues and Gene loved doing issue stories in the sixties because he 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 was clicking on all cylinders then by the eighties he was not he was not firing on all cylinders anymore, and while we wanted to do issues, Rick Berman wrote a marvelous memo, a three page memo. I just found a copy of it a few weeks ago um listing. I would say there must have been about 20 ideas on each page. He must have listed about 60 issues. Number three on the list was AIDS. And this was in the middle of the 80s when it was still nobody wanted to talk about it. So here were all these issues that Rick Berman said we could address. So what happened between the 60s and the 80s was we went to the Star Trek conventions. And the two things happened at the Star Trek conventions. First, Gene Roddenberry became the great bird and started realizing And at that time, he didn't have any other income. So Lincoln Enterprises was selling scripts and, you know, tchotchkes of all kinds. And that was their income for a long time. Um, So Gene wanted to push the sales, et cetera, which I don't blame him. um, And he ended up... uh, doing the, I'm Gene Roddenberry, the great bird of the galaxy. No, he did, but he would do it in a very human, very almost humble way. I, I have this vision that we can do better. He's going, yeah, I'm inspired, let's do that. Uh, so the fans bought into it, but then Gene bought into it. So I think that was part of it, is somewhere in there Gene started seeing himself as a philosopher on the level of Gandhi or, or you know, uh, well, Gandhi is probably, you know. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I never saw myself as a philosopher. I loved reading some uh, uh, philosophers, but I I see that philosophy in itself is a dead end unless you find a philosophy that you can apply that actually makes a difference for other people. There, such as, you know, Jesus was a great philosopher. Forget all the the Bible stuff. He says, be kind to each other. Ooh, that's a great philosophy to live by. I like that one. And uh, so philosophy by itself is You know, that's the guy sitting at the end of the diner, count at the counter in the diner with a cup of coffee telling you how the world works. Um, Big deal. It's where do you make a difference for other people? And when Gene would talk about the vision, that was great, but it was uh, for me, it's always how do you bring it home? How do you tell a story that brings it home? Uh, That's what I always wanted to do on Star Trek. You said something very important about that Rick
1: Berman memo. Uh, you said that one of those topics was AIDS. <laughs> yeah. And this has been an ongoing kind of fan discussion, fan debate, fan argument. A- and I know among the writers as well for the last 25 years and that Star Trek's handling
3: of LGBT issues. Um, where, where has the breakdown? I can't come talk from? about what happened in the office when I wasn't there. Yeah. You're going to have to ask Ron Moore. Yeah. Uh, Cause he was there. Ron Moore said in a published article, and I don't remember where it was published because, and I apologize for that because I really should have saved a copy. He said that it wasn't going to happen while Rick Berman and Brandon Braga were running the show. Um, Gene made a promise in front of 3,000 fans at a convention in October of, or November of 1986. And I was there because I had been invited to the same convention. A fan named Franklin Hummel stood up, says, can we have LGBT characters in Star Trek? Gene said, yes. And Jean said, it's time, we should do it. It was a very courageous thing for Gene to say, particularly in 1986, which was, you know, the whole gay pride movement was only about 15 years old, 15, 16 years old. And, had, you know, Gandhi says, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then, uh, then you win. And the gay movement was still up to ne- ridicule at that point. It was with maybe a little bit of fight because, but because the gay people had established some political power with Harvey Milk in 78 and defeated Proposition Six here in California. But at that time, people were, uh, the mainstream was still very uncomfortable. The polls showed that, that was, it was like 60, 70% people didn't want to deal with it. Uh, so for Gene to say, yeah, I think that was a really courageous, and I give him credit for it. And then in a meeting, uh a few weeks later he mentioned it again. Now I figured okay, he said it because the fans wanted to hear it, but I made a note anyway. Then I I wish I'd had a portable recorder in those days that you know uh uh then a few weeks later in in a meeting, Gene said it again. Bob Justman, me, Eddie Milkes, I forget who else was in the room, he says, We're gonna have to have a gay character at some point. Bob Justman said, What, Lieutenant Tootie Frutti? And Gene balled him out. He says, No, it's time, Bob that we we 're had, we're about diversity, and I'll give you another one, which I think is just as a sidebar here, as we 're working out the characters of the show and we and and we decided we have to have a disabled character and and Jean asked me to do a memo, what are the disabilities, and how would we deal with it and I thought, well, we could have somebody who's got uh this kind of a prosthesis, that kind of prosthesis, you know uh Uh, I said, you know, we could have somebody with down syndrome who has a brain augment. That would be really neat because we have a lot of special needs. Gene came up with, uh, how about we'll have him be blind and we'll give him this eyepiece and we'll do that with our, our chief engineer. I said, oh, great, you know, because LeVar Burton has these beautiful expressive eyes, so we covered them up, right? (laughs) And we had already decided, you know, we were going to have LeVar – we didn't know it was going to be LeVar at the time, but we had already decided it was going to be – our engineer would be black. And uh, so we send that off, and we get a memo back from an executive at Paramount. Why are you giving him two disabilities? And we all just looked at each other and said, I -I 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 mean, we're just speechless. What do you say to that? And Gene – said, I'll handle it. Wow. Now, I give Gene credit. I mean, he got it on a lot of things. I give him credit for that. Uh, He got it intellectually, but putting it into practice, uh, because at one point I said, you know, uh, George Takei is one of our biggest people. Wouldn't it be great we could do something with have Captain Sulu or have Sulu? And, And Gene said, no, very firmly, absolutely not. Well, he he knew George was gay. It was not a secret among those of us who worked on the show. But in practice, Gene could be a racist, a sexist, and a homophobe. Intellectually, he could give you the speech, he could talk the talk, but walking the walk, he hadn't connected the talk with the walk yet. It was very weird because you wanted to believe that somebody who could talk the talk was going to walk the walk. Uh, he got it sometimes, sometimes he got it, sometimes he didn't. He didn't mind if Mike Miner was gay or, or William Ware Tice was gay. I don't think he wanted the gay person in the audience. I don't think, he, I mean, in the office or in, the, in a high profile position. You want it, you know, second tier is okay. You know, I wrote the Blood and Fire script and half the people in the office got it, what I had done. And the other half went crazy. And unfortunately, Leonard Maislisch had such control over Gene. Uh, at the point in time, we didn't know it, but Leonard Maislisch was doing the script notes for Gene, and then Gene would review Maislisch's notes and just check them off. And my proof of this, this is, I'm not just saying this casually, is I have a copy of Blood and Fire with Leonard Maislisch's notes on it, and the copy of Gene, the copy, Gene's, Gene's copy of the script, where he had checked off everything Leonard had written a more detailed note on. I mean I have the evidence so I, and and the writers guild eventually sanctioned the show for what Leonard Mezlish was doing. So I'm not this guy who's making stories up or this disgruntled ex employee. I'm this you know I'm the whistleblower here on this one. <laughs> Indeed. Um and the studio uh, the writers guild sanctioned the studio and the studio had to escort Leonard Mezlish off the lot. But by then the damage was so done the show was crippled. We started October 20th was the, my start date. And I said to Gene, we have a 6 months head start. Everybody else does their buying and writing season. They start April and May. They get the renewals, and they go to work for a June or July start date. Here we are, October. We've got a six-month head start. We can have our entire season written and ready to go, and we know that we can, by May, and you know what happened with, with Leonard Mazelish's meddling and, and Gene's inability to control his own show and all those extra producers been brought aboard? They did not have a final draft of Encounter at Farpoint on the first day of shooting. They were rewrite, and the entire season was a scramble to get a script to the soundstage on time. See, there's the dilemma, is you have this guy who's so inspiring as a visionary, and he's an incompetent manager, or he surrounded himself with people who are subverting him. The office politics were horrendous. And when Blood and Fire got, when I got all of this nonsense going on with Blood and Fire, I had to make a a choice. Do I want to be a good writer or do I want to be an accessory to the crime? I say, if I leave the show, the fans are going to be I'm, I'm going to take a hit with the fans. They're going to say, oh, what, how did David Gerald screw it up? But if I leave – and if I leave the show, there's a lot of money I'm not going to make. It costs me millions of dollars. But if I leave the show, I retain my integrity as a storyteller, which I have to – you know, I have so little integrity I have to fight to protect everyone out of it. <laughs> And, I, you know, when I walked away, I said, I'm going to do two things that I have been postponing too long. The first is I'm going to write the books I want to write that I have not had time to write. And, you know, by effectively uh, blacklisting me in the industry, they essentially they spread the word that I was too difficult to work with. And, and no producer would even return my calls. I couldn't after a while, I couldn't even get an agent. And so they did me a favor. So for 10 years, 15 years, I wasn't doing any work in television. That was a big favor because I got to write some books that were, I was really passionate about and I adopted the most wonderful little boy and I got to spend a lot of time at home with my son and we had a lot of fun together. He he had a stay-at-home dad. I was there for him, which is what he needed more than anything and we got to do a lot of traveling together, which we wouldn't have done if I would have had a, you know, and uh, ultimately, I got to write *The Martian Child*, which won Hugo and Nebula, and and became a John Cusack movie. So, you know, it was a. I didn't realize it at the time, but leaving Star Trek was a good thing for me because it was much better for me as a writer. There was a lot of human growth I got to do, and and I got to understand things that I would not have understood philosophically, emotionally, experientially if I had stayed in that pressure cooker we got to turn out a script we got to turn out a script we got to turn out a script and the scripts that were we were getting to see were getting progressively worse and this is not just me creebling about this is you look at the fans reaction to the first two seasons of star trek next generation there was an awful lot of resignation and disappointment from the fans and that's because of there was no central vision on the show um you know, I, 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 I'm i not a big fan of some of the people who came aboard later on because uh, here and there. But I give credit to the ones who made it work. Ron Moore did, did a great job. Um, uh, Rene Echeverria, that whole team that did DS9 and did that marvelous trouble with Tribble's 30th anniversary – That was one of the best scripts I've ever seen. And while I didn't follow all the later shows very closely, I could see that they had created, ultimately, while it wasn't the Star Trek I wanted to do or the Star Trek I wanted to see, I saw that they were doing a pretty damn good job of making it work, what they had inherited from the first two years. And I have to give them credit for that, taking this damaged, piece of goods. Those first two years were damaged and turning it into a show that had some real strengths to it later on, uh you got to give them credit for that.
0: Let's if we could, let's let's bring it back to what brought you in the Star Trek in the first place. I mean, next to next to Spock and, you know, I guess maybe the Klingons, Tribbles are like the most constant presence in each generation <laughs> of Star Trek all the way through uh Star Trek into Darkness.
3: Um yeah, that was fun. Although they missed a gag in Into Darkness, McCoy should have come back to the sick bay and found it full of tribbles. <laughs> I'm actually, like, I've actually that would have been a much better gag.
0: <laughs> all, right, all right, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it. Although if they're listening to this and they haven't, I don't know what they've been doing. Um, I, I, I'm it, actually, it, it, I'm actually haven't
3: seen the movie yet. Screw them.
0: <laughs> I'm actually very afraid of, uh, of of just incredibly strong tribbles in the next movie. Although that could certainly be the next movie. But um, why? Why? Why why do triples keep coming back? Do you think?
3: Because uh, they're cute, um, you know. Uh, uh, look at uh, the Pillsbury Doughboy keeps coming back. He's cute too. Uh, no, I triples speak to uh, an instinctive thing that we as human beings we like to nurture uh, cute little fuzzy animals, you know, like pit bulls and uh, uh, potbelly pigs and and you know dogs and cats we We have a relationship with animals. You look an animal in the eye and you're looking at another soul, horses and cows and even sheep with their ugly eyes. You look into you, know, <laughs> you you look at an animal and here's this other living thing and If you have any empathy at all, which I think empathy is the greatest of all human virtues, if you have any empathy at all, you start to wonder about this who's over there and what are they seeing and who do they see you as and what's the connection and um the gag is tribbles don't have eyes but they purr and and they and if you've ever picked up a little kitten that has its eyes still closed and you have to feed it with a bottle and while it's sucking away and and then you're petting it and it starts purring and you, you you it connects with you on a very visceral level and i think that's the the thing is that Tribbles are an emotional connection they they awaken you at that very human emotion that we we have a heart, we have a soul, we have passion, we have emotion and and you know while Star Trek has invested so much time and energy and let 's be logical. That let's, well, let's be really logical and recognize that human beings have emotions and that emotions are part of the package and they can be a very valuable part of the package. It's not just about feeling good or feeling bad, is your emotions are kind of like your uh, instrument panel giving you a a sense of the terrain you're on uh, in, in relationship to other people. Uh, it's the, If you can get to a very zen state, and, and this is, doesn't happen because you say, oh, gee, I'll have a very zen state. It takes a little work. But if you get to a very zen state of where you are actually looking at your own emotions as they occur, your emotions are like that needle on the dashboard telling you uh, how fast you're going and and how much fuel you have and, and what direction you're going. Uh, your emotions are, are a clue to what's happening in the universe around you. I I, see, and here I am, being the philosopher now. But that's one of the things: is after uh, leaving Trek, I got to do studies in applied philosophy and, and the human potential movement, which is a terrible name for it, and and all kinds of workshops and trainings, and, and it's like, what is it I don't know that other people know that I want to know about? So I, I said once is when I was still in college, I think I'm a perennial student, and now here it is, like almost a half century later, and I'd say, yeah, I guess I am, because one of the things I love doing, people ask me, you know, what do you do for a living? I say, well, 90% of what I do is research, and the other 10% is planning revenge. <laughs> Is there any untapped ground? The, you know, I, I mentioned the LGBT thing, but
1: for Star Trek to look forward, it, it, what do you think the, uh, the, the the areas that Star Trek has not yet dealt with that are are kind of crying out to be handled by by? Well, I,
3: I would work? ask you, what makes you uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. Because. You know, in the 80s, talking about LGBT topics, most people didn't want to because, well, if I bring it up, people think I'm gay. And now we're at the point of who cares? Uh, you know, George Takei came out. Uh, probably, You know, I, I, and a, more power to him. I love George. Uh, uh, but the real courage uh, for LGBT people was to come out in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and be, be willing to be the target. Be willing to be on the front line, and I think that we need to acknowledge the courage of those who came out when it wasn't popular to do so. Now, you know, if if Tom Cruise came out of the closet tomorrow, we'd all go, well, thank God, Tom, we were afraid we we're going to have to tell you. I don't know if he's gay or not. I don't care. Um, uh, it's... You know, it's. It, I just saw this uh, wonderful Steve Soderbergh picture behind the candelabra about Liberace, and it was a very sad picture. because it's as brilliantly produced and directed and acted, and, and 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 the production values as brilliant as the whole thing was. is really a story about uh, re, uh, the ultimate dysfunctional gay relationship because uh, Liberace could not be honest with his public about who he was back then in the eighties. Today, you know, if Liberace were working to alive and working today, it'd be like, yay, Liberace is, you know, he could come out and people would cheer him for it. Um, so I was very, you know, I, I saw it differently. And now, what's next? I mean, assume we're now at the point where a majority of the American people recognize that gay rights are civil rights. that bisexual, transgender rights are civil rights, and that it's wrong to discriminate based on who someone loves or their sexual identity or orientation. A majority, but we still have a lot, a long way to go. I mean, we supposedly we won the battle against racism with the Federal Civil Rights Act and the voting rights. We still have a lot of rampant racism today all over the country, not just the South, not just, you know, here, there. there. We still have racism. So we're still going to have sexism, misogyny, uh, homophobia, all those Things that let us, that waste our time and have us be less than we are. But I would say if I were producing Star Trek and somebody said, well, what are the issues? Well, terrorism is the obvious, but let's take fear is, you know, fear is the uh, bigger issue. Because everything, every time we do something stupid, it's because we did it because we're afraid. Um, I say that, I would say what makes us the most uncomfortable And that would be where I would go, you know, and I I would have to look. Sex makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Violence makes people uncomfortable. But there's political issues that make people uncomfortable. Uh, The discordance between the haves and the have-nots in our country is the worst it's ever been. It's worse than it was just before the French Revolution. I wrote The Cloudminders, the original story, Castles in the Sky, was to address it, which was obvious to me even then. And I think that would be a story I would want to tell, economic disparity So I and, and the possibility of revolution that that creates. Uh, another story that I would tell is, is where's the positive in organized religion? Where's the negative in organized religion? That would make a lot of people uncomfortable. And one of the arguments I've heard against that kind of storytelling is it offends people. Well, David Kelly has been doing that and has one of the best careers in television. Um, um, my response to that is you're not offending people. You're not doing the job that Star Trek is supposed to be doing. You're supposed to wake people up, make them think, make them care, uh, have them talk about these things instead of pretend they're not existing. Um, and so we got a, a, one of the memos on blood and fire. My gay episode, big gay episode, two gay characters, one line of dialogue. How long have you two been together since the Academy? That was it. That was the, uh, you know, and this was, and we, and and Rick Berman wrote a memo saying we're going to be on at four o'clock in some markets. We're going to get letters from mommies. And I said, great. It'll show they're watching. Then not only that, they'll watch the next week to see if we're going to offend them again. We want people talking about these issues. And besides, in this script, if you're under the age of 13, it's how long you two been together. You're good. They're good friends. And if you're over 13, you'll get the subtext. This went down to Gene's office. Leonard Mazlish and Gene probably spent three seconds on it. Leonard says, rewrite it to take the gay characters out. So Herb Wright sticks his head in my office later that day and says, great memo. Because in my memo, it said, Gene made this promise. If not here, where? If not now, when? And uh, 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 Herb Wright says, great memo. You still have to rewrite the script. Okay. And that was the moment I said, you know, I'm in the wrong place. It, because if we're not going to do what we promised to do, if we're not going to keep our promise, and if we're not going to do stories that are real issue stories, why are we doing this at all? Why am I wasting my time doing something anybody else can do? I only get one life. There's only one person on the planet who can write a David Gerald story. Some people like reading David Gerrold stories. Not enough. Uh, but... I better be doing the stories that I love doing and not the stories that I'll be embarrassed about or have to apologize for or have somebody come up to me at a convention and say, Why did you cop out on so so I'm not going to be the cop out guy. I'm not I can't do it. I you know, one of my role models is Harlan Ellison, another role model is is uh, Robert A. Heinlein. Once upon a time, Gene Roddenberry would have been in that list. Not again, not more. And it's it's I love Gene. He gave us Star Trek, um, but he he was not someone who could live up to his own promises. For our listeners who want to read more David Gerald stories,
1: where should they find you? Oh, go
3: on Amazon (laughs) and you you can download a Kindle app if you don't have a Kindle. And um, there is – I would recommend if you want hard science fiction, there's Nowhere Man, Ganon, It's a Spaceship. If you want Passionate, there's – Uh, 13 o'clock and in the quake zone those are good for lgbt readers uh if you want to the play i just uh, produced and directed is called uncle daddy will not be invited and that script is also on amazon and there's a whole bunch of other works but those are the ones oh and if you want one that refers to star trek in a really fun way read the kennedy enterprise those are uh i think some of my favorite ones up on amazon and i'll just say that i'm wildly entertained by your facebook page Oh, thank you. Yeah, you can you can follow me on Facebook. I can't friend you because I'm at my limit. But uh, I don't. I you know George Decay posts all this really funny stuff, and he's king of of Facebook, and I love him. Uh, and Brad, uh, they're they're just both wonderful. Um, I I can't be that funny all the time because I start getting angry, and my son it will come. It, he'll wake up one morning and he'll do an hour rant about he saw something on Facebook that was racist. I say, oh, my God, somebody on the Internet is wrong. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm old enough that I don't get angry. I get amused by the stupidity of racism or misogyny or, or homophobia. And at the same time, I get a little disturbed. It says, is there something I'm being unconscious to? Am I being stupid about something? So I, it's a constant learning experience. I, I think that if we don't go through life, so what can I learn today? We're wasting our time. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh no, it's my pleasure. I'm not going to be doing a lot more interviews. It takes up too much time, and I'm not getting paid, and I'm not giving up my writing time anymore. But this one, you know, I love Rod. I think Rod is a great guy, and and this is a great project. So, you know, the opportunity to be a part of it, of course, I would. Thank you.
1: Incoming transmission.
4: Uh, hi, guys. This is Eric Potter. I'm calling from Columbus, Ohio. And I'm just listening to the supplemental in my car, uh, the one with Rod Roddenberry, where you're talking about the order that you're going to be doing the episodes in. Uh, I'm rather behind this podcast listening. Okay, so clearly to me, the order should be the original series, uh, the animated series, the original six movies, straight into the next generation and then the uh, next generation movie starting with generations however there could be an argument made for starting with d Space Nine halfway through the next generation and alternating episodes between d Space Nine and the next generation as they were on simultaneously and d Space Nine was introduced uh, through the next generation uh, if you remember uh, I believe Picard and uh, the Enterprise kind of guest starred in the first episode of Deep Space Nine i I'd have to go back and watch it to get to be sure it's been a long time so an argument could be made that at that point um, when you hit the next generation and the Deep Space Nine being on simultaneously um, you know you might want to alternate back and forth between those episodes uh, just due to the fact that they are happening concurrently so that's my observation thanks for the show Really
0: love it. Fine. Yeah. You know what's really interesting? It seemed like such a natural when we were originally talking about recording this. I mean, mm-hmm. like before, you know, like in March, I guess, of 2012, when we first started talking about doing this. Mm-hmm. We had it laid out. Yeah, it's going to be the original series then the animated series, then the next generation. Oh, they throw the movies in there in between, of course, then the next generation, then Deep Space Nine, then Voyager, then Enterprise. Because doesn't that make sense? Right. and And, and it does... Until you think about it. Right. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to start Deep Space Nine and Cisco's still going to be whining about the fact that, you know, uh, Picard was Locutus. That was like, that was years ago.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: right. Except, of right. course, it wasn't because we pick up with Cisco being a little hinky with Picard because didn't his wife die because the Borg and all that? It's, well, it's been years uh-huh. since I've seen it and it'll be years until we get to it. But bottom line... A number of people have said, actually, you know, sometimes these shows intersect, sometimes they intertwine. And sometimes even if you don't have, you know, stars from one series on the other series, you will have them mention something that happened on the other series. Uh, the only thing that makes sense is to watch them all.
1: Yeah, well, and, and here's the thing. Like, I, I, I think that wisely uh, the, the, the powers that be in charge of Star Trek looked at this and they figured, okay, well, we... We want the crossover audience and we want to leave these little Easter eggs for them to find and these mentions that kind of make the Star Trek universe very consistent uh, if you're paying attention. But at the same time, they had to realize, well, okay, there are TNG fans that didn't necessarily pick up with DS9. There are DS9 fans that didn't continue with Voyager. So these series kind of work on their own even if you didn't watch the others at the same time. So certainly there are things to be found, and there are are rewards for that. Uh, But there's also something to be said for our sanity and the sanity of our listeners, that you can pick up the Blu-ray set, watch it in order, and not switch out discs every week because you're trying to catch up with the other series yeah no
0: god bless netflix that's what i'm saying i mean i hope they're still doing that that many years down the road i I hope they still have the rights to star trek because yeah yeah that whole switching out discs and all that dumb stuff i just like the fact i'll just hop over to the other series now and do that i will say though if you are one of the people who loves the next generation and hates deep space nine and we have gotten emails from those people and vice versa Mm -hmm. people who love Mm -hmm. deep space nine but had no use for next gen yeah. You're going to need the slide rule to figure out when to listen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because I'm like, okay, so we just, last Thursday was Voyager. So what am I listening to right. now? I don't even know anymore. I don't guess. Yeah. I can't remember though. Was there ever a time when all three, were all three of those series ever on at once? Or has uh, it always been two?
1: There were not. Yeah, there was always an overlap at the end of one season, the beginning of the the next show. So there they were never three on the
0: air at the same time. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Because that might make me lose my head.
1: Yeah, But I mean, I I think long and short of it, we are still discussing this. We're still trying to figure it out. And very helpfully, we've gotten lists from you guys, from our listeners saying, well, here here it all is all broken down on this handy Excel spreadsheet (laughs) in case you want to do that, Um, which is great. I I thank you for doing that. Uh, But we're still kicking around trying to figure out what would make the most uh, sense from a production point of view for us. And just for a listening point of view for our audience, oh, so my we'll goodness, see this
0: because you know the other problem, uh, forgive oh, no. me, well, when the enterprise oh, yeah. goes back in time to you know uh, early nineteen hundred san Francisco
1: yeah, right, that's a
0: two part episode,
1: yeah, and yeah. there's
0: no crossover, I don't believe with anything going on on uh, Deep Space Nine at that point, yeah. Because maybe Deep Space Nine wasn't even on the air. But what do you do about two-part episodes that don't have anything to do with the other one? Uh, yeah. Do you then mm-hmm. – I mean, so do mm-hmm. you – or do you do both of those as one episode? Do you break it up the fa- – phone. I don't know if I want to do this show, John.
1: <laughs> you see what we do. This the, the, the stuff that we struggle with.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's terribly difficult to be a couple of geeks who sit around talking about Star Trek.
2: Hi. Uh, this is Chris Powers from Quincy, Illinois. John and Ken, I want to tell you that I always enjoy the Mission Log podcast. But I want you to know that I think the bashing of the sexism is getting old hat. The reason I say that is because this is a 60s show we're talking about. And sexual mores, whether they were good for women or not, and they weren't, they were what they were. It's like criticizing uh, colonial era people for wearing tri-corner hats. Not the same as, uh, certain people wearing tri-corner hats today. Um, so what was in style back then, it, it is what it is. I should also say that, uh, the great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry was sort of known for having, uh, let's say a wide ranging sexual interest, um, in women in general. Um, he was uh, very much an appreciator of the female form, let's say. So, uh, that has to be taken into account. That very much derives, I think, from the sensibility of, uh, its creator, uh, as well as the time of, uh, that it was produced in. So, uh, once again, thank you so much for producing this. Uh, thanks to Rod for, um, producing this and uh good luck and uh, i look forward to future episodes thank you very much
0: all right well first of all chris thank you and i'm gonna start this with a sincere thank you for your comment and for being respectful about your comment and for your listening because i really do love the fact that you called in and expressed your um eh, boredom let's say uh with with this sexism uh, thing that we address from time to time um uh, <laughs> almost every time i will grant you uh, i appreciate the way you said that because there was somebody um and they, they may be listening today and hi i'm glad you're listening too but there was somebody who got fairly snarky on twitter this week and said learning the lesson to press fast forward when ken brings up sexism so so chris the way you did it Gold star man thank you very much uh, that said um there are a couple of things from the tone of your voice and from your name, I'm assuming that you have male parts. I can tell you that when I watch an episode of Star Trek with my fiance, who um, has, has lady parts, and it's a particularly uh, sexist episode, she can't watch the episode anymore. And it's not like, you know, I mean, she, she's, she's, she gets stuck on the sexism part. I kind of feel like it's important to go ahead and address that. And even though it does happen a lot, and even though you're right, it's a product of 60s culture in a lot of ways, um, I think it's important to acknowledge it and to talk it through. Because there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be completely turned off by the fact that that happens to the point that they can't see any other value in the show. And I also think it's important to, even though it happens quite a bit, I, I personally think it's important to point out when it does happen so that we don't, you know, Fall into the trap of well, that was then, so who cares? because somehow that th- that kind of thing tends to leach forward now, what I will say is um, and not to not to be too much of a challenge to you, would you say the same thing about racism? I mean, would, would we go ahead and keep watching Star Trek today if they had a Sambo character on there or or if 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 uh, if George Takei had played Sulu the way um, Mickey Rooney played uh, the upstairs neighbor in um, Breakfast at Tiffany's.
1: You just made me cringe physically by I mean, mentioning both Mickey of those things. Breakfast. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, yes, I, yes. There's
0: two things there that are horribly offensive. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but I mean, we don't take especially and I don't know. I don't know your ethnicity. I will say for years as a white male. cries of sexism were pretty much like cries of an ant to my ears. I mean, they just didn't, they didn't ring with me because it it felt like, oh, come on. Things are so much, you've come a long way, baby. So why are you whining? (laughs) Well, no, these are actually, I mean, these are actually real issues. Now, let me sum this up again with saying, thank you very much, Chris, for stating your position as, as eloquently and as, as genteely as you did. And, and I hope that I have, um, I hope that I've responded in kind, um, I don't go looking for the sexist stuff. It just—I mean—when it pops up, though, I feel like we have to—we have to go ahead and acknowledge it. The good news is we're over halfway through the original series now, so yeah, not likely to happen quite as much in
1: and, the next and it'll generation. Never, it'll never—it'll never be sexist again. <laughs> right. End of show. <laughs> um, the wh- end. The end. Uh, yeah. it, it, no, I mean. <sighs> We've done a lot of episodes and we have a lot more to go in all of Star Trek. And part of the thing that he's mentioning here is the sort of the repetition of we we point out the same things. It's funny. In another voicemail, somebody said they really miss calling out Enforcer Spock. You know, <laughs> that, that, that was kind of a little meme that we had going for a little while. And they said, right. oh, I really miss it. You don't have that anymore. And I feel like what's important about the sexism uh, angle here is that we do and, – and by we, I mean you and I, but I also mean Star Trek fans. Uh, we give a lot of credit to Star Trek where it is very much due for thinking forward, mm-hmm. for having uh, a multiracial cast, for presenting ideas of peace and social progression – all from a time when it seemed like these things would never happen. And certainly here in the early 21st century, we have our own struggles. So it's important in this process to, to help contextualize Star Trek for a 21st century audience that we look at the places where it got it right and got it wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, so, yeah, could, could we call it out one week and just say, yeah, and that happened and that's sexist and move on? Sure. I, sometimes it may spark a bigger discussion, particularly when you are presented with a character who is female and who is strong and powerful. And I have to mention a real Shaw from Court Martial. Mm-hmm. because we actually got an email I don't know if you got this one Ken or if it just came directly to me where one of our listeners actually quoted our conversation they, they transcribed our conversation talking about a real Shaw and how we kept mentioning she's this great strong female character in a show where you've not seen a lot of that and she's mature and she's smart but then you and I are also kind of Juvenile, because
0: we also keep saying how
1: hot she is.
0: You see, that's the thing. I don't know, and 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 there was another one that was kind of like that too. I don't think I got that yeah. email, and I would be curious to read our words, you know, written yeah. back to us. It's kind of interesting. But, um, I, I Chris actually mentioned the fact that uh, Gene Roddenberry, um, kind of liked the ladies. Well, I kind oh, yeah. of like the ladies. I don't think it's mm-hmm. sexist to say that someone is attractive. I feel like in a lot of ways, um. Cries of sexism or, or complaints of sexism might have gone a little far sometimes, and again, this is you know i 'm a guy with guy parts, so I, I am I have not been a woman on the receiving end of that, so i don 't know for certain it doesn 't feel to me to say. Oh, the woman who played a real Shaw is, is very attractive. Or even if even if we got a little goofy about it, because, you know, I was I was a 13-year-old boy at one time, and, and he's still there. I've got a Darth Vader mask over in that part <laughs> of my studio, and I've got, like, two Star Trek patches against felt behind glass in another part yeah. of my studio. There's a 13-year-old boy living here. Uh, he also <laughs> happens to be 40-something. All right. And doing this show, so I mean, I don't think there's anything sexist about saying that someone is attractive. I think I think it's you know how you how you then you know treat that person, and and yeah, I mean we we are also we have I mean, Ariel Shaw was a strong character. Doctor Dana was a strong uh, character who was also attractive. We talked about her. Um, yeah. Uhura. I mean, yeah. so often what we pay attention to about Uhura is the fact. That Nichelle Nichols was black and being put mm-hmm. in all of these situations, she's also a woman being put in all of these situations, and that is not a small thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, we applauded them for 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 Majel, um, Majel Barrett mm-hmm. being uh, number two in the original series, although of course, or the original pilot, but of course that was shot down by the uh, by the network because right. no, nobody's right. going to buy a woman in a position of power. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway. Yes. Yeah,
1: I, I I really appreciated Chris Chris's call too, and and it's not to say that our discussion or bashing of the sexism is going to end. It, it's not, and <laughs> and, I, and I, I certainly can't uh, say that we won't. Call it out when you or I think someone is very attractive. That may happen again too. Yeah. Uh, but we're trying to do a couple of different things. We're, we're trying to be real with you, our audience. This is where Ken and John are coming from. And but we're also trying to look at this as um, what what are the important issues and and are there messages unintended that are coming out of a show because they just got something wrong (laughs) you know and and that that has happened Uh, there's so many things that Star Trek gets right and uh, we we really like to applaud them for it but every now and then that uh, that sexist attitude comes through it's unfortunate uh, but I I think it's worth discussing but we'll try not to bore you too much with it Chris and uh, thank you very much for calling and thank you very much for listening.
5: Hi Kim and John
6: Uh, this is Tom living in, uh, in Stockbridge, Georgia. You guys have made, uh, have definitely made Mission Log my, uh, my favorite podcast that I consume. Um, just listen to your Trouble with Troubles episode. I'm on board with, with your comments. There's one additional um, message that it's possible that it might actually tell you more about me than it does about the episode. But in short... What occurred to me was the idea that if only one triple, how much harm can it cause? Well, at the point that you've got a bunch of them, then it's an issue. For For me as a collector, I get that with respect to, oh, it's just a Hot Wheels car, oh, it's just an action figure, oh, it's just this, it's just this toy, but at the point that you've been doing this since 1975, and you might end up having Boxes all up in storage, and in your wife's second bedroom, and you know, in the media room, and in the garage. Then, you know, it might actually take some management. So, at the point that Kirk says, you know, in answer to Uhura, Uhura is saying, "Well, you know, Jones says that the tribbles, that tribbles give love, and and all that kind of stuff." Kirk's response is, "Well, too much of anything." even love isn't necessarily a good thing. So I definitely thought that one of the takeaways from those, one of the messages, one of the UC Timmy moments would be there's something to be said for moderation. You can it is possible to have too much of a good thing. So there you go. You guys are, are most awesome. I look forward to Thursdays, uh, incredibly uh, I'll I'll put the news broadcast and other and other podcasts to the back of the list and listen to you guys first thing on Thursdays. So take care. Best of luck to you guys. And, uh, and thanks to, uh, to Rod for tasking you guys and giving you your resources for being able to do this. Um, it is, it is so very appreciated. Take care. Bye.
0: You know, Johnny's right. It's like me and heroin. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was that wrong? And follow up question. Was that out loud? Yeah. <laughs> And it was also not, of course, that's not, that's not true. Not you, true. You probably had something much more serious to say about it than uh, than my I, stupid little one line.
1: Not now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good night, folks. Good night. No, um, I... I yeah, I, I like that. I, I, well, first of all, I like that Tom got his own "You See Temmy" moment yeah. from that. Um, and, and I think I mentioned in that show uh, about how my girlfriend's brother got the pet gerbil or a pet hamster and then couldn't take care of it anymore uh, after it did its natural bodily functions. He's like, oh, it's cute. I'm going to take it home. And then he's done with it after about an hour. You know, so there's sort of a real consequence to the things that you buy and certainly the things that you collect. I mean, uh, you mentioned moments ago about your Darth Vader mask and the uh, patches behind glass. And, you know, here I am living across the country from the house that I grew up in, and that house still has a room full of. Stuff, Star Trek stuff, Star Wars stuff, James Bond stuff, comics, you know, all this stuff that I collected that I think is super cool, but I don't have anywhere to put it right now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, imagine if it had been tribbles and they could just multiply
0: on their own. That, uh, that would have been a mess. It would have been <laughs> a lot to clean up. It's also interesting that in Tom's comment, he points out that uh, Kirk says too much of a good thing, even love you know is not good yeah mm. no, surprise surprise james d kirk <laughs> not you know not wanting to stick around someplace where people like him right yeah right. no this is not nearly difficult enough <laughs> 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 which is kind of funny did we mention that i don't think we did mention that actually on the trouble with Tribbles. but yeah anyway that's yeah it's kind of an amusing thing but yeah no I, l- I love the fact that he got his own UC see to me and, and not one that we got yeah uh out yeah. Of that, that's kind of uh that's kind of fun that's very
1: cool. We get fantastic voicemail, fantastic email from all of you. Um, I apologize that we cannot answer every single bit of it. Some of these can. You know. Some of these, they'll do a, a several-page-long dissertation on what you and I say
0: about it. Oh, don't I know. <laughs> so, Although somebody sent us a fascinating – somebody – I mean, it was, I was embarrassed by the time we got to the end of the email saying that we're, we're like – that by doing this and by being associated with Rod, we're actually becoming like part of the, like this goes on the shelf now with the episodes. Yeah. Which yeah. is um, certainly more than, than I could have ever. I, 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 well, more than I could have expected, maybe in some weird, you know, like, like sleep, like I'm on like between waking and sleeping. <laughs> it right. might've been a dream that people would look at this show that way. Um, but I mean, the fact that anybody does, and certainly the gentleman who wrote the email that is unfortunately not in front of me, um, mm-hmm. uh, felt that way was kind of, uh, kind of stunning. Yeah, yes. So, we've done a lot of, uh, the, the phone call, um, um, or Skype call actually, mm-hmm. uh, responses this time, but there are a number of ways to get in touch with us and we would love for you to, and next time we'll hit emails instead of, or, well, I shouldn't say just, but we'll hit some emails instead of just the, uh, the call in. Number of ways for people to get in touch with us uh, Facebook, Skype, and Twitter at uh, the handle Mission Log Pod, as we mentioned earlier. Also, Facebook and Twitter, especially. That's how to keep up with us in Vegas. Mission Log Pod is the name there. Uh, you can call us, although that's not an actual phone and it doesn't ring anywhere, so that's not going to get us in Vegas. 323 522 5641. The number again, 323 522 5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. MissionLog at Roddenberry.com is the email address. And don't forget to check out our very nice home on the internet, MissionLogPodcast.com. Remember, we may use your upcoming episode, huh? (laughs) No, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log a lot like this
5: one. Hi, John, Ken. Uh, This is Bob from Connecticut. I'm just calling to share with you my appreciation of this, this little adventure that you're on. Uh, and, uh, and also to uh, congratulate you on a fantastic podcast um, I'm very much appreciative of what Edition Log has done for me and that's assisting me in overcoming my fear and that fear is shattering my idol that somehow the original series could not possibly live up to my memory of it, of the boy in the 70s uh, Wide-Eyed Wonder of the Future, and uh, Man of the 80s, in discussions with my father and friends on themes and what this show means, and having lost touch with that as you, know, you move on to other things and other Trek, um, I just was so afraid of, of repeating the absolute disaster I'm introducing my son to the Hardy Boys mysteries that um, original series has been on the shelf for me for a long time, and I have to say, with the perspective and the um, and, and, and the approach that you have to show of, of taking the content seriously but never taking yourself so is wonderful. Has been great, and it's it's been great to get back into this this timeless, uh, thought-provoking and still forward-looking uh, show. And uh, again, I can't say enough how appreciative I am of the approach that you're taking to it. Um, gentlemen live long and prosper, and I look forward to the next and the next and the next.